All right. Well, let's just dive into it. Let's start with the presentation so you guys can check out what I've been looking at under the microscope and documenting and uh, really building out and, and creating a much more developed and much more detailed perspective, holistic perspective on soil and soil science. So I'm really excited to share some of these things, some of these images, some of these ideas, and some of these things that we'll be talking about today have never been discussed before, even in my classes. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So thank you all for attending. Let us start the screen sharing. And so soil biology, this is the mastermind I'll be giving to you guys today. It will not be up. <laughs> it will not be up permanently. Uh, there's so much information in this. It covers so many things. Uh, it, it, so it's just going to be uh, around for a short period of time, um, probably Monday. Uh, and so watch it while you can. So what if we sterilize plants and soil for 100 years? Like what, what would that story look like if we were to sterilize plants and soil for 100 years? Well, you guys know that the sky and the air and atmosphere, you know, is oxygen rich. It's also nitrogen rich. Um, but the, 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 the soil should be carbon rich, right? And so when we till, we, can, we kind of reverse the situation. And the thing is, when we do that, we actually oxidize the soil organics, the carbon and the nitrogen. Did you guys know that oxidation is the loss of energy, but also moisture? and organic matter. Um, and that sterilizes the soil. Did you guys know that? That that literally kills the soil. It kills the habitat for the life in the soil. And you're, you're, you're in a situation where they leave it bare for longer. So they let that, they, they let that sink in, right? <laughs> It's terrible, but this is the story. We just happen to be living in it. So it's large stretches of sterilization that they're letting sink in. Also is paired with the pesticides, the fungicides, the insecticides. They kill all the other levels of the soil food web. And they also destroy soil organic matter. And the harsh chemicals we're talking about when we say, the, you know, a pesticide or, a, you know, all that, they oxidize to destroy. So it's same mechanism. Soils are 30 to 50% fungi, depending on where you are in the world. Obviously in the desert, it's much less fungal, but soils rely upon fungi for structure. So when we apply fungicides, they lose that structure. And then in the rain, they come apart. And then they flow and their nutrients are organic, right? They get oxidized. So those organic compounds of carbon and nitrogen cause eutrophication and kill the fish and, and the life cause algae blooms. This has happened everywhere that we've practiced agricultural, like means of tillage. And, and, and there, there, are, there are alternative agricultural examples like Peruvian, like... Uh, they had this seed drill. They would do no-till corn planting with it's really simple, really powerful. And so there are examples of agriculture without it, but tillage agriculture is primarily what we've been doing 
it causes desertification and eutrophication wherever we go. A lot of people jumping in right now. <laughs> I keep adding people in. So desertification. So what are we talking about here specifically? How bad is it? Well, 12 million hectares of land is lost to desertification a year. And it's been going on like this for a while now. Remember the Fertile Crescent? You guys remember history class, seventh grade, sixth grade? Fertile Crescent, anyone, anyone? Bueller? <laughs> All right. So where did their fertility and water go? Do you guys remember this? So it's the birthplace of agriculture in the Middle East and the West. And they caused desertification by overusing the small amount of water they had over larger and larger expanses of land until they basically didn't have enough water in those places to maintain what they were doing. And then when there was a drier season, it exposed how vulnerable their system was. And doesn't this sound like the supply chain where they're like, well, we just have enough on the shelf for for the next person to this and the da, 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 right? <laughs> it's a, it's not a new problem. We we, we all we're, we're trying to optimize, right? Um, uh, but 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 we get we get tricked by that. We get messed up by that because if we just think it's it's optimal to spray and kill things, there are things that we can't see with the naked eye that we would that we would miss. And this is why past generations for tens of thousands of years, well, for thousands of years, at least tens of uh, 10,000 years have been tilling because they haven't seen that these microbes existed. So we now are in a situation where we only have 55 harvests of topsoil left. That's an estimate. So certain areas, they're gonna have more, certain areas are gonna have less. That's a total average. And whenever they do that, it's never quite true for any one area, right? Um, especially on a gl global averages when they make those numbers. Just keep that in mind. Um, it, it, the reality is we've shrunk our topsoil so dramatically that Dust Bowl type situations, historical Dust Bowl, remember that? History class coming back again. Um, it, it, these types of things can just happen. Uh, there, there can be, you know, uh, one season where things get really, really dried out. We lose huge stretches of land. And then the next season, there's a mudslide and all that topsoil is gone. And now you got exposed bedrock, subsoils, and uh, completely different plants um, will grow on there if they grow on there, you know. So it's, it's, it's very real. It's happening right now in real time. Thank you all for being here. Uh, what would happen if we sterilized our bodies, right? What would happen to, whew, I know what happened to my body if I sterilized my body. Um, I, you know, antibiotics, my stomach, they don't mix. Um, because when I sterilize my stomach, I, I my health just craters. Uh, and it takes me a long time to recover. We'd actually all die without bacteria and fungi in our bodies. Um, just like plants rely upon microbes to get their nutrition, and we'll get more into that later. Animals rely upon microbes and their gut digestion on their skin, you know, so many different ways that we're just beginning to understand. That means we rely upon microbes because the plants and the animals and ourselves for digestion rely upon microbes. We're in this chain of events, uh, the, all these cycles in which all the key linchpin moments and relationships are actually fostered by and facilitated by microbes.
And that means our future relies upon microbes. We, we can't escape that. The microbes within us and within the soil unlock the nutrients for people and plants to live. And, and not just live, but to thrive. Um, without microbes, we can't thrive. And we're going to go over a, a bunch of fundamental reasons why throughout today. So we always want microbes. Microbes are key to thriving. So all reproduction, all health, and all life is predicated on accessing those nutrients which are released by microbiology. And it all starts in the soil and water. And the bad news is the microbiome of the world is depleted. And you probably already knew that. The desertification implies that. Uh, but before I go any further, who am I? Real quick, you're here for a reason. You you already probably know me, but I'm Matt Powers. I'm an educator. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about all this stuff. I was a musician about 20 years ago. This is what I did for my bread and butter. Started my family and uh, crazy things happened in our lives. And it led us on an incredible path of, 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 of greater health. And you know what that usually implies. <laughs> And I had to become a substitute teacher and then and then I became a full-time teacher, fell in love with teaching. And then it, somehow in that process of service, I became a citizen scientist. Uh, but it's taken years, a decade of service. Uh, and then it's been over 20 years, almost 20 years of teaching now. My my boys are growing up uh, and and I'm working on I'm working on my 24th book right now. So I'm an author and educator and entrepreneur, soil expert, seed farmer, and family guy. It's been this transformative journey, but we'll get into that some other time. We're here to talk about soil biology. And, and, and really the reason why it's important is because it fits into this, this universe of the things I do that all facilitate a bridge into the regenerative future. Because regenerative soil, regenerative plants, regenerative bodies starts with our understanding that microbes are implicit and and working in between everything too. So so let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Let's get into the details. So these are the the paradigms of plant nutrition. You may have heard a few of these. How do plants actually feed? Well, in the hydrogen cycle, they're taking sunlight in the energy from the light as well as CO2 and water. And, and that's sort of a, a feeding, but it's really photosynthesis facilitates them facilitating all the other processes of nutrition and, you know, gives us our oxygen. So we like it. Right. Um, but it's, it's pretty interesting when you get down to the energetic side of it, because you see, wait a second, the protons, the H plus are having an effect where they're reducing the soil, but they're also making these cations available. And then if you look at what the opposite of what that is, oxidizing, remember we said loss of energy, oxidization, right? Uh, oxidation, excuse me. Um, plants require four H2O molecules for every nitrate molecule they observe. Plants require more water when nitrates are applied or when any fertilizer is added to that is oxidized or alkaline. And so if your soils are like that, they'll transfer that. If you're preparing something in an oxidized way, like hot compost, fresh hot compost is going to be oxidized because you've got a lot of aerobic 
oxygen in there, the heat release is literally the liberation of energy. That's why we light a match and it's hot and it's fire. So keep all that in mind as we dive deeper. I'm not going to get into all this. I mean, this is the whole week or two of conversation on just that energetic side, but but this is what I wanted you to see. As it brings down that energy, it's actually putting that onto the clay and organic matter particles in exchange. It's kind of like forced exchange uh, to displace the other, the, the cations, the other nutrients um, that are just not already soluble. These are, these, these are released. This is actually the, the pathway that chemical ag has been using the whole time. They use ions, um, cations and anions. They, they, they deliver them in salts, which is chemistry word for salt, which is chemistry definition of salt, which means any of those two things that are in a stable compound that is soluble in water. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is why there's a lot of like confusion around this. So there's, 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 and again, I'll get, in, there's other, other videos on that, but that's one of the ways that it feeds energetically through exchange, through the energy it brings down. But then you probably heard about the soil food web. That's probably why you're here. Uh, many of us are here because of uh, Elaine's great work. This is an extension of our work. This has many more arrows than you've probably seen in some of the other soil food web uh, maps out there. This is the most extensive and informative, and it took a long time to vet every arrow right there <laughs> is referenced. So uh, this is this is the process by which, uh, you know, the soil food web traditionally was taught as the way the nutrition gets gets cycled. The bacteria and fungi, they embody it. And the protozoa release it. Nematodes release more of that because they feed on protozoa and bacteria and fungi. And protozoa and nematodes have waste. They have manure. They excrete things. Fungi and bacteria will release things, but they're doing stuff with it. They they've got a mission. They've got they've got a a prerogative. Um, and so they're 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 releasing it because they want to trigger things in the plant. They're they've got they've got certain things they're doing. So this is traditional, right? This is not the main reason to do compost teas or compost extracts or compost, okay? For real though, you'll see. It, it's it's pretty wild. Um, more people want in. This is wonderful. Thank you all for being here. This is also the way that organic matter accumulates because as, you know, the exudates, the cakes and cookies come down, they that's traditionally what Dr. Lane Ingham would say. Um, they, they would, they would combine with the H pluses, the protons, which are acidifying. So that creates humic acids, right? So it combines with the carbons, the sugars that are coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get it. Um, and, and, and all these other things are also participating in that, but I just wanted you to keep that in your mind. So rhizobium. You've probably heard of rhizobium. These are not the profiles, guys. These are not the profiles. I'm just introducing these things as ideas. We'll get to the profiles. We'll go so much deeper. So just, <laughs> just know that these are not, um, these are not um, the profiles. Brady rhizobia, mycorrhizal fungi. You can see mycorrhizal fungi working its way between the cell walls and outlining the cell walls for us. And some of them they've entered and 
this is why I think that a muscular idea, when have you seen, I mean, there's lobular fun, fungal growth, right? But th this this seems much more fine. It much it seems much more hyphal, um, which is what it looks like when it when it, it has external hyphae. So uh, I think that, and I'll talk about this in my book. You know, um, th there there is evidence that the destructive ways in which we characterize our muscular mycorrhizal fungi to create the arbusculus is actually represents nubs of what actually should be there, but because we caustically attacked it to create the image we burned it down to just that arbuscule and it actually was much larger and it could be lobular it could be could be just so fine like this where it goes brighter and brighter and then it just is so integrated uh it's it's fascinating all right so <clears throat> this is another uh perspective Notice how um, the transport of phosphorus um, is 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 part of what's lighting things up. This is a manual lighting technique of a root. Um, I this is my technique. <laughs> you can see that there's fungal hyphae all over the root, right? Um, this is without epifluorescence, so you can do this without epifluorescence. Epifluorescence allows us to see um, the fungi grow, glow, and the phosphorescence. But there are many ways to view these things, as I, as I show and cover in my new book. I'm so excited about the new book. Um, so endophytes, that's another way. Uh, flip on the endo, uh, epifluorescence, and you see those endophytes. At epifluorescence again, you see in the leaves, the leaf surface that when you have your stomata protected by fungi, they're, they're in fortress. Just like, you know, traditionally how Elaine Ingham talked about you, compost tea, leaves and everything. You're gonna wanna do specific microbes in the future. When you learn what's possible, you're going to be triggering, growing, preparing very specific microbes at very specific times. And you're going to be protecting your plants and fortressing them, triggering them, strengthening them all at specific moments. Um, and we're going to get the highest levels of expression out of them that way. And, and this makes sense um, when you look at the nitrogen cycle and you see that, you know, endophytic fixation in the leaves is happening of nitrogen. Uh, this is something that, you know, uh, Dr. James White has been studying and, and, and proving out that all plants have nitrogen fixing bacteria and fungi in their trichomes, which are just plant hairs. But there's more. <laughs> all right. So the rhizophagy cycle, this may be the main reason why we should compost. <clears throat> So we know that the exudates at the root tip go out there, they feed the bacteria and fungi, they reproduce. We know that. But did you know that there are cells being drawn in through the meristem cells? Yes. And once inside, they're bombarded with a form of oxygen. I know, oxygen. I thought I loved you. <laughs> oxygen then strips the cell, superoxide specifically, strips the, the cell wall 
off of the um, the bacteria or fungi and they leak electrolytes and nutrients and they often just are, are, are destroyed and completely feasted upon by the plant root. And then they, the ones that survive this process that are not endophytes, they actually are forced out through root hairs, repopulate uh, on the outside of the root hair and they re, as they reform. And it's not clear perfectly like where and when they're reforming. They're, they're reforming their, um, their walls in the root hair to a degree and then all, even more outside, but they're reforming their entire walls. So these are like, for some of these, it's like their sheep getting sheared. For some of these, they're getting harvested. And for some of these, they're endophytes. Okay, and we'll get into this. So if you didn't know, this is primary because the plant roots do this immediately when they, out of all seeds, they, they start doing rhizophagy and they don't need the other levels of nematodes or protozoa. So that this is the easiest, simplest, first primary foundational feeding mechanism that mycorrhizal fungi hijacks, that um, rhizobia hijacks, like uh, this is the way that plants primarily feed. And this is why compost teas and compost extracts are so great. And that's why everyone says, do them on the drip line where the new roots are, where the feeding root tips are, in other words, okay? They reabsorb 90% of the exudates that they put out. So the whole idea that they're just putting them out and then there's a cycle happening outside the roots and then they're just harvesting the benefit of that, that's not, not what's going on. They're drawing them all in through their exudation that they release. It's not cakes and cookies as much as it is Hansel and Gretel, right? <laughs> and then with, with the, when we look at endophytes, they're actually playing an exchange, a fast exchange game. And so they're, they're releasing ethylene and they're releasing nitric oxide. And what's that, what that is, I mean, it looks like this. This is what it really looks like. Let's look at it up close. You guys see that? Do you guys see the bacteria crowded in that root hair? There's a root hair. This one's not so swollen. The next one's going to be more swollen. Are you ready for it? Here we go. Here we go. Swollen. See how it's swollen? It's like, it's like a balloon. So, and you can see how the pores are leaking bacteria. See how filled this one is? Guys, you see this? This is how easy it is to prove out the things I'm teaching you for yourself. You can go see this stuff. And that's why, you know, I do so much research. Sometimes it take thing, my things take longer than I expect. Um, <laughs> sometimes I go too hard and make myself sick. <laughs> um, but plants are active, passive, and reactive. People want to paint them as these react, like, like these active deciders of their fate. 
that'd be great if that was true, but um, you can't turn off the sun. They're going to just, they're passive. They're going to take that energy and they're going to create sugars. If they don't create the sugars at, uh, properly, they have simple sugars and not complex car, you know, carbohydrates. And those simple sugars, it's monosaccharides, not polysaccharides, I should say. Um, those monosaccharides are going to attract pests. And then they build up and they start leaking those simple sugars. And then they get the suckers and then doom, done. So they're active, passive, and reactive. And unless you're examining them through these lenses, you won't see your plants. You'll miss something. All right, let's get into it. So microbes are being digested, stripped and restored, forced to fix nitrogen, partnered with and beneficially coexisted with all at the same time. So much of, of what the confusion is, is that there's excretions and secretions and there's sloughed off organic matter, dead cells from the roots. So you get saprophytes feeding off of that. And those saprophytes most likely plants evolved to absorb those into rhizophagy. Um, and, and, and that would make sense, um, that our, our saprophytic bacteria and fungi from a compost then would feed so well into rhizophagy. Fantastic stuff. And and that's the things when you understand their perspective, you have these like all these breakthroughs in your practice and, and how you work with plants. Plants rely upon biology for their immune systems. The highest levels of plant health are all dependent, levels three and four are all dependent upon, as John says, vigorous microbiology, but we're going to get into specifically which biology here today. And in plants, you know, they're in the roots. Um, people know that, but they're also in the phloem. And that's what that looks like. That's fungi. That's your epifluorescence again. More of that. Um, it hasn't reached the phloem and xylem. Um, we are relying upon plants. We are all reliant upon microbes in our digestion. I just want to remind you of that. I'm going to continuously remind you of that throughout the presentation because I want you to want to partner with biology because it it's inside you. It's your digestion. It's But it's also when it's optimized, it's your optimal health. It So much of the microbiology and the symbiosis in our stomach or gut biome is our happiness, is our feel good. And I want your soil to be in that feel good zone. I want your food to be in that feel good zone. And I want you to be in that feel good zone. And it really takes partnering with biology. Many of us started eating local foods in the past 20 years. And part of the feedback loop, if you tuned in last time with biohacking, is partnering with the biology of the local bioregions so that we're tapped in energetically we're tapped in biologically we are in a feedback loop so let's do it let's get into the soil biology profiles you guys ready let me make sure that okay looks like people figured it out good all right 
I'm just going to check one thing. All right, everyone. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Lots of chats in the in the uh in the uh chat. That's really good. It's about to get crazy. Whoo! You guys ready? All right. There are things that you're going to see that you're not going to see anywhere else. Okay? I know there's going to be some screenshots, but but keep in mind that this is this is special stuff, all right? So end of fights. We just talked about this. They release ethylene to, to, to promote the root hair growth. Okay. So if you have no microbes, you have no root hair growth. They provide nitric oxide or dye, as Dr. James F. White says. So if you if you have endophytes, you're actually internally fixing nitrogen. Do you guys see the value in this? Internal fertilization. You have bad soil, endophytes. And suddenly, you've got internal nitrogen fixation happening in a plant that I thought only legumes fix nitrogen in their roots and nodules. No, sorry, Bob. No, the endophytes combined with saprophytes are going to give you this palette of options and diet and nutrition, especially if you preload it in a compost tea with like something like kelp or, um, or in a ferment with EM. It depends on what your goals are. I don't want to paint you either pH or either, you know what I mean? Um, so so it's just incredibly powerful to understand that though, that you're like, oh, this this site, I want to transform it fast. How do we transform it fast? Use microbes. It triggers various gravitronic response and roots so that, you know, gravity, right? Uh, gravitropic response and roots it goes down and the root hairs elongate and they, there's more branching and th th this is all this is just almost all of them do this so when you do this in combination the endophytes the mycorrhizal fungi the rhizosphere bacteria the partnerships between these microbes do you guys know that there's the microbes actually work together there are highlights there are all stars there's like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And you want to put those together, right? I may have just like revealed how old I was. <laughs> As a kid, I watched those guys. Um, so ah, um, but those are those are basketball players from the 90s for folks that don't know who they are. So Scottie Pippen always was providing the ball at just the right times for Michael Jordan to 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 uh, uh, slam dunk it. So um, that was funny. <sighs> so there are microbes that partner together, no matter, you know, your metaphor. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, and there's so much more. Uh, so like, let's get into it, the bacteria. So I'm only gonna talk about the top three reasons for things because this is a section of a course that I borrowed pieces from and then expanded in different ways with new images that we can spend weeks on. And I've recorded hours around. And these bullet points are often several slides that have bullet points on the <laughs> uh, 12 to 15 bullet points, you know, total, like if we want to just do it that way. 
but I boiled it down today so you could understand how important these things are. But I want you to know that this is not it. And in fact, when I normally talk about these things, I go into way more depth as you could probably imagine. <laughs> I, 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 I just want you to know that there's tons more and I'm just simplifying and, and focusing on these for, for emphasis. But in the course and in my book, we cover so much more and there, there's just a lot and it's all useful. So uh, it was very difficult to boil it down to three top reasons for so many of these things. Okay. So bacteria are amazing. Um, they store nutrients. Let's fix that. Here we go. Are you paying attention? Here we go. Uh, they store nutrients internally as they reproduce. Uh, and they reproduce with that, the nutrients, the excess nutrients. They don't have manure. That's why we need the protozoa and the nematodes to unlock the nutrition. That doesn't um, preclude them to release things that trigger plant roots to do things. Bacteria are resourceful. They'll even like flash light at things. They can make flashes of light, some of them. So, so I don't want to like close the door on any of that. Just remember that they primarily feed on simple sugars. And I know again, actinobacteria, they're the bridge between the two. Um, specifically bacteria evolve symbiotically with plants. Um, specific bacteria evolve. Um, so we need to know which bacteria they are. We don't want to know just in general bacteria. It's actually not useful to just say how much bacteria you have or just how much fungi you have, just like as a blank statement. You wanna be able to analyze who's there because you could have bad fungi, you could have bad bacteria for your situation. So categories of bacteria in their function and form, all right? So there are many types of bacteria. We're just focusing on a few of the soil-focused, compost-focused ones. Plant growth promoting rise of bacteria. They're incredibly important. Phosphorus soluble bac bacteria. So P solubilizers. This is a list from the chart in my book around biofertilizers. Anything that's a nitrogen fixer can also be called a diazotroph. And they're, you know, everywhere. Rhizobia, we talked about them earlier. They're primarily responsible for global nitrogen fixation. So it's really important to use them. I mean, the reason they're cover crops is because of the power that they have. They're attracted to a root hair by plant exit. It's, I mean, legumes most of the cover crops partner with the rhizobia. That's why they're using cover crops. That's why you're using this as an inoculant in almost all your cover crops, um, different variations of rhizobia and within the family. And they're attracted to root hairs um, by plant exudates, and they can persist free living for 1.5 years. So until far into next season, which, which is pretty amazing, but it makes sense that they would have evolved that way. It's what it would look like. Um, and, and this is more information on diazotrophs. The thing to think about it, going back to that original way that they were getting nutrition out of the soil from the roots, 
they were applying protons. Do you see how many more protons this is for every bit of nitrogen fixation? So that's more cations. And when we see that everything is linked, we also see that there's a pathway that you compound and cause exponential growth. And, and that's what I'm talking about today. We can, we can connect everything and we can make it work at a much higher level because it's not all sugars, um, it's energy. Rhizobium specifically is the most common member of rhizobia. This is the bean, peas, not alfalfa, right? This is the nodules that everyone sees. They actually fix atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, glutamine, an amino acid, or uretes, a nitrogenous substance. So that's a pretty broad range. It's really important to recognize that. This is a cow pee. Um, but this is what a nodule looks like up close. This is what it looks like in um, epifluorescence. And you can better see them. Here we go. This is from the book. So at 1,000x, you can see the bacteria there forming tetrads inside the nodule vesicles. And these are areas where they're forcing out all the oxygen so that they can do their nitrogen fixation process. It's pretty fantastic. Um, so actinobacteria. This computer, is, it, it doesn't know that spelling. It needs to know the spelling. All right. Um, Actinobacteria, it's important to, to know that what that actinobacteria is the false fungi. It looks like mycorrhizae, but it has uh, the, the septae are not closed. So they look, they, they're more banded, and you can see that there's bacteria inside them circulating. They're more translucent, they're non uniform, um, their cell walls are, are thinner. Um, and they have uh, spores, they're more erratic, they're not straight and not uniform, they look less sturdy. Uh, and, and and they actually are endophytes. I know a lot of people have been trained to see streptomyces and actinobacteria, the false fungi as bad, but they're endophytes. And if you're looking at anything, compost or soil, they're going to be present at, they're going to be the second most present microbe. So it's really important to recognize that they're good because uh, a lot of people see them and they're like, dun, 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 it's anaerobic. And it's like, no, it's probably just alkaline and oxidized. That's all. Um, and then you know what you need to do, right? Um, so, uh, it's, it's common in all the soils. It is important to plant roots. It's important internally to plants. It's important to composting and folks are like thinking that it's just there and where it dominates. The thing is it dominates here. Okay. But it's also very tolerant. I did. I, <laughs> I know I'm trying to limit myself to just three, you know, but I got to let you know, Streptomyces, my good friend, is one of the most versatile pH ranges um, of all microbes. 
and complexity wise um there's only a few other that are as complex so gotta show respect you know um yeah 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 so two-thirds of the world's natural naturally derived antibiotics are coming from streptomyces so when we talk about antibiotics in the soil yeah there's penicillin in the soil but streptomyces is the one doing most of it okay and in fact if you saw penicillin in the soil you'd probably be a little bit alarmed because it does not look like typical healthy soil um and streptomyces um, really does look like that it's uh they're facultative they're ubiquitous um they reduce atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia and they're the most complex bacteria ever documented <laughs> So we got to show respect to streptomyces. It's also, do you guys see that? Let's let's zoom in. Why not, right? Hey, we're here. Let's do this thing. You guys see the cell wall there? That's not closed. Okay. There's bacteria inside. Do you see the bacteria inside there? Do -dun -do -dun, do -dun -do -dun. See the bacteria there? There. You guys are seeing this, right? I hope so. There. And these are ones that like, and these are also nuclei. There's also like, there's an exchange happening. They're reproducing too. Um, that's what that is. And so we have to keep this in mind that these are reproducing. These are releasing spores. There's spores in another field of view right here but they're also intersecting and, and reproducing in as, as many different ways as they possibly can. And it has to do with when they, what foods are available, what conditions are present. I've tried to force my microbes through as many different uh, permutations of their life cycle as possible because you can't actually map them all out. Um, I mean, did you guys know that trichoderma has a teleomorph? another form that's yellow like like yellow foam looking wood saprophyte you've probably seen this wood saprophyte it grows on decaying wood and dead wood it's yellowish it looks foamy but it's hard that's actually trichoderma so it's really important that we you know keep all these things in mind um this is a page from the book here And so we have, this is, this is um, all streptomyces. And this is a lab certified um, live culture. That's the other thing that I did um, was I made sure I got living cultures too that I ran through their paces. Most people aren't doing that. And so they shoot from the hip because they're using things that they're just always been looking at instead of taking perfect pure cultures and comparing them. And when we do that, we actually can um, really vet things in a completely different way. Let's keep going. So azosporulium, it's an aerobic rhizobacteria that fixes nitrogen in diverse soil types. It produces hormones like indolytic acetic acid. So acetic acid, um, vinegar, right? Do you guys hear that? Acetic acid, vinegar, right, right. Okay, 
So um, this is why vinegar can can literally have an effect on plants. That's why people are doing diluted vinegar. This is why, you know, doing uh, calcium with vinegar. And you're like, oh, there might be some vinegar left over in there, right? Maybe. That's okay. There's a reason why it's actually beneficial. It's probably... Um, you know what I mean? Was 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 it just incidental and just just was it beneficial in its own way? Um, Gibblerellins, cytokinins, like substances, they protect plants from stress, both abiotic and biotic. They trigger the plant's immune system. Microbes trigger the plant's immune systems, and they go on to another level of alertness, and. It, not only are they getting all these benefits from the microbes, but because they're like, oh my gosh, something's going on. I got to wake up and deal with these people at my front door. They wake up. They're not, they're not as passive. So you'll see as a spirulium in many biofertilizers, many microbial blends, it's a plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. And, you know, if you're looking at hundred X, it's imperceptible. Um, but you can see the spores here. You can see um, you can see them liberating themselves uh, and and um, growing new um, new um, cells. Oh, sorry, I'm confused. That you can see spores in here from other things, though. No, but you can see the cells, the small cells right here. They're tiny. This is a thousand x. Thermobifida. I got so exhausted this week that I had to stay in bed for a whole day. <laughs> I made myself sick earlier this week. Don't do that, folks. Um, I knew how to do this, so I, I stayed in bed so I'd recover faster, but I'm still, still fighting things. All right, so... <clears throat> So my voice is so much lower. I don't know if you guys have noticed. Um, so thermal bifida, this is found in compost everywhere, but it senesces and disappears when the hot compost turns into a cooled compost, turns into a fermented facultative compost. And then the Johnson Sioux, this, is, this, this has it as well. So all of our composts, all the ones that get hot are going to have that. And then bacillus or bacillae. Um, um, aerobic, and they're both aerobic and facultative. It's important to recognize that facultative is not bad. A lot of people have developed notions that facultative is bad, but the soils themselves are facul facultative. They're ubiquitous and they're nearly indestructible. And actually when we boil and when we heat things up in a compost, they're triggered. So um, lactobacillus, um, bacilli, all those words, all the things that people are talking about, um, those are, 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 are like woken up when we do our barely cooked rice. When we do, that's why you can make, lab with a rice wash water you know what i mean um that's why you can do all sorts of things um so 
critical um, component of EM uh, in every compost, no matter what type. Yeah, so lactobacilli are different forms of it are in all the different forms of EM that people are promoting and doing. And But you can do rice wash water and make lab as well. But you can also be boiling roots and the lactobacilli are the, 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 the microbes that will be woken up. So, so they're an incredibly diverse group of microbes. Mm. Now, this will be an interesting one. So, uh, notice I did more than three because this, the, I just got to talk about this. So, this is like a great advantage, right? We see that it has biocontrol, but it's a potent fungicide and bactericide. It creates auxins and stimulates root growth, immunological alertness. But remember, it is a fungicide and a bactericide. It forms biofilms that outcompetes other microbes and contributes to the formation of soil aggregates. This is amazing. Can survive high temperatures in UV exposure, not removed by hot composting, exposing soil to light. Huh. Right? It's the hay bacillus. So, um, so what would happen if you did your protozoa infusion? Like, you know, the, the, the Leningham protozoa infusion where you're doing straw and you're just making like a, a compost tea of straw. Well, you would get bacillus subtilis in there in large amounts as well. And while you have the nutrient cycling there, you will have to follow up with something more fungal to balance things out after there's been the feast. Because you're delivering it, there's a feast, there's all this stuff going on. But then you got to bring back the fungi or bring back the foods and the fungi so that you rebalance things. You guys see that? So... Let's go further with it. This is why this is why this is why I, I left all this here because I was thinking of you. All right. If you are like, wait, Matt, I use straw and hay in my compost. What are you saying? I'm saying this is why you have low fungal counts. <laughs> right? Do you guys see it now? Let me know if I'm moving too fast. We're on a Wednesday. Welcome, everyone. Hello. <laughs> I have to take a breather to myself every once in a while to catch up because this that it's that wild level of information. And everything is that detailed. And that's why it's important that you know we stay on page. And I stay on point. <laughs> <laughs> because that that if we're doing too much hay, if we're doing too much straw. And we're promoting fungicide, bactericide in our compost. We're going to have low numbers. Even if you're doing uh, like a vermicompost or something, that's going to control the digestion and limit the digestion and probably make it harder on the worms even. So we have to balance these things as best we can with, with other foods. Not straw, not hay. And I know if you're like, this is where I am, this is what we can get at this time, well, maybe you're going to be making a really fungal food rich compost extract 
to balance things out that goes in five days after this, a week after this. All right. This is how important things think these insights are. They scale all the way up. They explain why we're finding roadblocks in our way. This is what it looks like. And obviously this is a verified collection of it. So it's a purified culture, um, but they're, that's a lie. So they're just rods. So in the mix, the rods, you know, uh, are going to look like other rods, especially, I mean, it's on there. I can't show you. Well, maybe they're actually, we'll see if some of them are on here. You'll see how small these things can get. This is at a thousand X and they're actually pretty big. There's things that are way smaller. These are, these are fat, even fed well. All right, pseudomonas. Um, they're beneficial, they're aerobic, they're found in soil, water, and endophytically. So they're the feedback loop between all those different environments. Pseudomonas florensis is the most commonly known plant growth-promoting rhizobacteria. So what does that mean? When we look at these things, when we see like what's the most reliable, what's the most commonly used, arboscular mycorrhizal fungi, it's going to be intrarodices or irregularis, but it's Pseudomonas florensis over here for the bacteria. It induces, uh, it, it induces systemic resistance and releases cyberforce. And so it actually um, strips other other microbes of their iron so that it um it 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 outcompetes them for iron and so it kills them in a very passive way. It's it's incredible. Um, but there's other pseudomonas that I want to talk about. This is Rhodosodomonas palustris. This is a kind of a mysterious all-star of the uh the soil world, the composting world. I Oh man, I have been looking for this microbe for years. I've wanted to get a picture of it. There's only a few people with pictures of it online in the world. And they're not great. Pictures aren't great. And so I've I've struggled, you know, uh for years to like really know these things for for what they are. And and until you see something you can't really know it. And in the process of doing this book, this most recent book, I was able to characterize and study pure cultures of Rhodosodomus palustris, which is purple non-sulfur bacteria, which is a member of EM, a key member of EM, traditionally taught and 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 ideally should be in there. But all the EM one that I ever tested wasn't in there. EM Pro is guaranteed to have it, um, but it's a facultative anaerobe. And it feeds on light, carbon, CO2, electrons, and it actually exchanges electrons to get other things like the way plant roots do. Incredible, right? So it can photosynthesize. Um, it's found everywhere. It's that feedback loop, but it's also like an extremophile. We don't know, you know, the like the like the full power of of this microbe, even though it's one of the most studied microbes in the world. So Let's look at it. 
so this is this is a page from my book um and uh there's there's two different forms of rhodosomonas palustris this is why a lot of people get confused there's a bacilli form which is the rod but it's kind of a wiggly rod um and they're motel so they're going to be like moving around and then there's the stable um the the the, the rooted combined stalked bunches and they that's where the rhodosudomonas um comes from they're forming these you know these false flowers so so yeah yeah it's pretty pretty epic um let's let's just look at it yeah you can see what it looks like i mean it's so significant that when you have it you know it once you've seen it and i know that all of you now that you've seen it this is kind of like one of my gifts to you all you now know purple non-sulfur bacteria on site when you have it at high le high levels and numbers, um, it'll form um, these incredible uh, formations, these flowers. Um, they, they look like flower heads to me. So pff, you now can uh, you now can spot those under the microscope. Archaea. So these are the lookalikes of bacteria. They're primarily extremophiles, but they're actually everywhere, like one to three percent or 0.01% if it's like Johnson compost or something. And they're critical to natural cycles, but found everywhere, especially um, in hot compost or ferments. And you're not gonna be able to tell the difference. They're gonna, they're gonna look just alike. Luckily, a lot of things you can tell apart, but, but many things you can't. Let's talk fungi. So uh, I couldn't fit it all down to three. This is one of those exceptions that we're just gonna have to make. So they are the architects of our world. They're the primary, primary cyclers of carbon, over 10 times the amount of CO2 that we release, they release. They're the builders of soil. It's, it may seem like they're being inefficient by releasing that much CO2, but it's part of the way that they make soil. It's beautiful. Uh, and it's vital for all plants. Now, um, all plants have endophytic fungi in them. Most plants have relationships with fungi that's critical to their survival. Fungi have an externalized exter uh, externalized digestion. They release enzymes and the acids they absorbed the di digestive results. That means that in their wake, they're gonna be leaving like glowing crystals of phosphorus and calcium and other minerals. They, they decompose the stuff that uh, bacteria does not, which so the lignin, the, the stuff that's more complex carbohydrates and carbon compounds. And they are the communication network, but they're also uh, the electrical network, uh, the economy, the highway for the soil. They're, they're, they're really um, the facilitators of so many cycles and the bridge between so many different groups of cycles and holons in the soil that it's, it's impossible to really um, contain the importance of fungi and this list is just a fraction a fragment of how many more uh, how much is 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 really what i want to say there's so much more to share so there's also groups a lot of people just say fungi you do have your fungi are we talking about saprophytes are we talking about those are decomposers are we talking about mycorrhizal fungi the mutualists we're we talking about endosymbionts 
are the endophytes? Are we talking about the parasites and the pathogens? Because fungi, the families of fungi, they are, they're all going to have pathogens within each of them. And so they're going to have lookalikes. They're going to have all sorts of things. And that's, so that's why it's so incredibly important that we start the ball rolling in the right direction and we protect and feed our plants the right foods situationally in the environment through the microbes and through their microbiome so that they, they are supported fully. They're the architects of living systems. Now let's talk about yeasts. This is, this is something I left in here because basically this is a lot bigger talk. I pulled a lot of things out of this. So I've got some highlights in here. Um, there's so many more that we could cover. But the top three reasons why um, yeasts are here is they're ubiquitous. A lot of people talk about yeasts as that they're bad. Makes no sense to me. Yeasts are ubiquitous on such a level that they're inside the plants, inside the soils, on all the surfaces of everything. And they're going to be plant growth promoting. They're going to be essential to composting. They're going to be essential to EM uh, or any biofertilizer ferment you do. So, and this is baker's yeast, this is brewer's yeast, right? This is yeast. So you can you can you can you can use this and you can combine it with something with you know um something that you want to preserve the nitrogen in because it won't eat that. It won't use the nitrates. You can have something else eat the nitrates. Uh, and then it's it's incredibly easy to promote. It's incredibly easy to find and to use. Um, and and so it can tie up your urea and your ammonia as well, um, and then be taken up into the plant, and then fixes. Where does it fix the nitrogen from? That's right, from its store of nutrition within it internally. So if you're doing a ferment with Saccharomyces cerevisiae, you're feeding it a nitrogenous, you know, urea or ammonia or something like that, and it's taking it up into it. You can do tons of other things. If it's with EM, it, it can digest nitrates. It can digest, you know, anything, right? So, so that's why you partner these things together, right? Um, but the, but the idea here is is that you can you can have these things cycle, you can have these things tie things up, and then deliver them through rhizophagy, like we talked about earlier, directly to the plant. Mycorrhizal fungi. These are just a few of the roles. There's so many. This is a page from one uh, from re regenerative soil. They. Mycorrhizal fungi extends off roots. It expands the ability of roots. So you get more nutrition. There's more stress tolerance. You trigger all the immunological functions we've been talking about today. It filters things out. It's, it even, you know, it enhances photosynthesis. It's wild the amount of benefits mycorrhizal fungi has. So why aren't you testing your compost for phosphorus? Because phosphorus inhibits mycorrhizal fungi, okay? Just gonna throw that out there. 
So endomycorrhizae, we all know this partners with like everything, 90, over 90% of all plants, endomycorrhizal fungi, right? We know this. We'll get into it more in a second. Ectomycorrhizae, they are a small group. Uh, they're primarily the, the, the cold, temperate, high altitude plants and trees. And, and, and they, well, actually just trees. And, and they're not, unless you're a native plant nursery in Canada or something like that, you're not going to even worry about that, right? Top of the mountain to you. So most of us are going to, are, are, are going to be looking at endomycorrhizae or non-mycorrhizal. Did you know that your Swiss chard and your beets are non-mycorrhizal? Yes, they're going to inhibit the fungi. So then you may have been doing this and in, in holding yourself back. I was for a little while until I figured this out. And now I don't do it. I don't get it in my way. I don't slow myself down. Um, you can do it this way because, I mean, naturally organic matter accumulates and then naturally it holds more water, has more carbon. And because of that, it holds more energy. And because it's more energy and water that makes it more acidic, it will become fungal dominant. And then those plants won't persist. Those plants won't grow well. So maybe you're like, oh, wait, maybe this is why my brassica aren't doing well. Oh, wait, maybe this is why my amaranth shrunk. Oh, wait, maybe this is why my shards and my beet are tiny this year. Because you're growing them in soils that are now more reduced, more fungal higher organic matter levels. Um, these are weedy crops that, you know, when we're desperate, you know, and our soils are, are at their edge and they're disturbed or damaged, we can still get food. And that's where they are. Woo. This is the other problem. When you don't have a micro filter, anything can happen. This is why lettuce, this is why the brassicas, why spinach, we're seeing all these problems because they aren't micro filtered. I, I, you know, I used to grow amaranth that used to be uh, something I did, but it's something I avoid now. Our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, we talked about it earlier. It's important to recognize how powerful mycorrhizae is. All right, we're going to do four reasons on funneliformis masea. So it's a phytostabilizer, so it can transform heavy metals and toxins into harmless or less harmful forms. How about that? It's great for alkaline and arid climates. Hey, I know that like we were just talking about how your conditions, you know, you're alkaline, you're arid, it's easy to grow these things that are non-mycorrhizal. What if you're, you're inoculating your brassicas with FM? And you're like, how would I do that? I thought you just said they're non-mycorrhizal. They are unless you're applying trichoderma. Trichoderma magically, they just discovered recently that it opens the door and allows our buscular mycorrhizal fungi to partner with brassicas. So this is a way, and brassicas are reducers, not oxidizers. So they're a, a way, even if you're in 
the alkali oxidized arid climate to break on through to the other side. They boost flower, root, pod, seed, and fruit production. Amazing. Uh, but I should let you know that that's what AMF does. They all do that. And check this out. This is what I was alluding to earlier. Panabacillus a PGPR is an ideal synergistic bacterial partnership found in nature. So that means that there are microbes, bacteria, and fungi that partner together that help each other do their jobs better. Imagine if you knew that the last time you applied your microbes. Imagine if the last time that you applied it, you were able to apply the microbes that you wanted to apply at the timing that you wanted to apply with their symbiotic partners. Different feeling, different result. So, hey, look, Gigaspora margarita, tropical, subtropical, glomus monosporum. This is great in just in general. Paraglomus brazilianum acidic and reduced. Do you see how we're going all over the map? That's right. No matter where you are, there's a fun day for you. All right. So low pH acidic soils, high pH alkaline, septoglomus deserticola. I mean, it screams, hey, I'm here for the desert, right? There are these things. And, and then look, uh, Clarioidioglomus partners with Micrococcus uninensis. Okay. If you're like alkaline, that's me. Then this entire time, I hope that you were taking notes. Because if I went back 10 years ago and heard these things, it would have saved me so much time, so much effort money, uh, tears, just so many things. And I, I would have been able to help so many more people faster. So please take notes on the things that we're covering today. And then there's rhizophagus AMF. Um, So there's even more. So um, it's not just uh, regular AMF. There's rhizophagus. Sound like rhizophagy? Right. So these uh, glomus intravardices, this is the dominant AMF species. This is the one that's everywhere. And almost all soils, almost all crops. This is why you can't go wrong partnering with rhizophagus irregularis, just like Pseudomonas florensis, right? It's in everything. You know, I mean, biofertilizer-wise that you're buying, right, 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 right. It's, it's, these, these are the things that people are selling because they, they increase nitrogen fixation. Um, so when you do this in partnership with the beans, you're, you're, you're inoculating it with your mycorrhizae, you're inoculating it with your rhizobia, and then you're putting it in the ground and they're synergetically working together. Bigger root growth, nutrient absorption, overall yard, larger yields, and a healthier plant overall. And again, <clears throat> it's triggering all of those immunological responses. So what does it look like? 
that's our buscular mycorrhizal fungi just starting. Do you see how it, it moves like a haze rather than a branching tree as it establishes? And then once it establishes, it's much brighter. Um, and then rhizophagus clarus, broad range of soil types. You're like, oh, that's me. Um, I, I've got areas that I've, I've, I've turned into much more fungal and I've got areas that are much more this. There you go. In, in the thing is, it works with Bacillus pabuli. And then look at Rhizophagus aggregatus. It's for alkaline and oxidized soils. So when we recognize that we need to look at our climate, our soil type, our, and then we're like, oh, and then what other microbes partner with this microbe? What other groupings? Because, you know, effective micro, uh, microbes, EM, is really a consortium of synergetic microbes. And I've already listed a few of them to get you started here today. There's more of them. That people take my course, that's why commercial, so many, so many people who are running compost companies or biofertilizer companies are taking regenerative soil because they're seeing these connections and then they're creating the products. And a lot of people are just doing it at home themselves. <coughs> I would go into ectomycorrhizal fungi, but we're still in fungi. We don't have time. We got to keep going. Protozoa. Let the, the top five, the top three reasons protozoa are important is because they're key to cycling the nutrients. We talked about them earlier, they're the bacterial grazers primarily, and they're going to be cycling and releasing the nutrients so the plants can take them up. The nematodes are going to feed on them. The earthworms are going to destroy them just in their actions. And their nutrients are going to be released and consumed by earthworms, but they're not like going out and hunting them. So they're eaten by them and consumed by them just passively. Uh, nematodes are hunting them out. Uh, all right. <laughs> this is what they look like. So this is a test state amoeba. You're going to see these in your hot compost because they need a shell to deal with the constant change in heat and water. They, 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 they need to control their environment some, so they're going to put that shell up. Um, <clears throat> but they're also very like widely diverse. So that one up there with the star pattern around it, if you look up testate amoeba, you're going to see everything under the sun and you're going to be like, wow, yours were all kind of similar. These are the composting and soil ones. There's there's so many ocean amoeba, testate amoebas with crazy, as you would imagine in the ocean with the, you know, all different shapes and spirals and it's wild. But, but in the soil, there's also some variation as well. And those are spores. And so you can see how these protozoa are feeding on bacteria, but they're also feeding on spores that are smaller than, than these spores. Their mouth is about the same size as that, 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 the, 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 the testate amoeba. Uh, I mean, the testate amoeba's mouth is the same size as the, as, as, as these spores. And so it probably wouldn't be feasting on these spores, but smaller spores like that one um, right here. That's a spore that would go in there. And actually, let's see if there's one. See, like, see that spore? You guys see that? The a lot of the time, it's like whatever they can get their mouth around. Um, for a lot of nematodes and and protozoa, 
uh, for what they eat. And so there's the, the general rule of thumb of what they eat. And then they're like, also, you know, they'll take the opportunity if it's in their face, right? Um, but you can see very closely. I mean, you can see really easily. Do you guys see that the well, it's better at this magnification? So do you see that these are bacteria right here? All those little dots. Um, and then these are testate amoeba in situ. You can kind of, and this is a page from my book. You can you can really see um, this actinobacteria here. This is a fungal hyphae. Um, and you can see the size difference right off the bat. You can see that this is actinobacteria as well here. This is actually um, like a filament of something. Actinobacteria here. Um, so yeah, yeah this is organic matter. This is the real. And then you have ciliates. Those are also protozoa. Um, and ciliates don't, don't mean necessarily bad in recent years they figured out that ciliates can actually be the ones transitioning things from anaerobic to aerobic so we have to understand you know what we're looking at and the ratios and have a contextual understanding using more tests to really make judgment calls on the microbes that we have present because the same microbes will mean different things, even at the same numbers and counts, if your pH or EH is different. I'll let that settle. Um, again, notes are good, right? Nematodes. It's top three reasons why nematodes are important. They're microscopic worms that are ubiquitous in nature. So you're going to see them. You're going to encounter them. You're going to have to deal with them and use them and partner with them, I hope. Come on. Um, and they control your protozoa and other nematode populations. They're ultimately like the buck stops with them. Um, they're the cyclers of all the nutrients at the highest level. And microarthropods are, micro arthropods are really shredders. They're huge. And yeah, they may be going after the occasional worm, but that's not really what they're about. Um, they, 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 they'll get the worms, but I feel like it's more incidental. Um, just like whatever fits, right? It's important to keep that kind of take one step back and look at the big picture with a little bit more, um, flow of possibility and potential and context. That's what my new book. And my, in my course, regenerative soil uh, gives people um, because uh, a lot of people got real close, got real close and they got, um, they got fooled. Uh, so it's really important that we go through the details here and they mineralize the soil, provide nutrients, um, consume pathogenic organisms. Uh, worms tend to do that. They're great. So what do they look like? Well, this is one trying to hide from the epifluorescence. It's beautiful, isn't it? So they're going to tell you, go by the mouth parts. The mouth parts are very helpful, but they can be tricky too. <laughs> they can be very subtle, I should say. The mouth parts is a great way to start. It's a first level of identification. 
These are bacterial feeders. This is a page from my book. These are root feeders. Notice how a porcelainus, so lame a porcelainus, that you look like a fungal feeder. Doesn't a porcelainus look like a fungal feeder, ladies and gentlemen? But no, no, no. Unfortunately, a porcelainus is uh, a root feeder with a very subtle, very, very subtle um, stylet. The needle that's in the mouth and the throat um, there. The bony part at the bottom, um, that, that's, that's, that's where the muscles attach and they force it out so it can be super strong. But porcelain is pretty lame, is hard to ID, right? Um, and, and there's actually omnivores that look exactly like a porcelain too. Not exactly. When you hold things up side by side, you start to see the differences. That's why we need a database. That's why I created this book. So we'd have a start and we start building the database out. So we would have hundreds of the same example. You have hundreds of the same example. You're just like, okay, it's also this. And you see other parts. Um, so um, there's also the reality that there's switcher nematodes. And you're like, wait a second omnivore i thought you said omnivore no 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 no. switcher okay they switch to like whatever is <laughs> whatever is easiest whatever is most abundant so um diplogasteridae um is a switcher nematode and so it, it can eat a lot of different things and and yeah no i know it's an omnivore but we say it's a switcher because it literally will behave one way and then switch to another so when you're looking at, and, and here we go, here's another one. This is a dark field. This is, a, this is actually a true uh, omnivore. You can, you can see by the lips. Um, so often people don't look at things in the dark field. I don't know why they skip the dark field. The dark field's incredible. You can see things in much more natural lighting or delicate, the colors come through in a way that you can't see. I mean, look at the difference between sterile, I can't see nothing, and then like, ooh, golden lips, right? Um, so, so I love the dark field, um, but it, it's important to, and then look at that fungal feeder, right? They, they, they puncture the fungal walls and suck out the hyphal fluids, um, but man, doesn't that also look like, yeah, there's lookalikes in the nematode community. But when you have them side by side, you can begin to notice the differences. And there's also tells. There's 2.3 million species of nematodes. So there's lots of lookalikes. Most eat whatever they can get their, uh, around, their mouths around most often too. So it's really important to recognize that we need to do things in a way that's not, we need to say things that not definitively, we need to tentatively identify nematodes. And you're like, oh, but I see the mouth parts. Yeah, but we've only pinned down the species. We haven't documented and described millions of species yet. We know we've estimated that there's millions of species because Again, when we say there's one to 10% that we've actually documented and ID'd, that's their, still the reality. Um, and it depends on which expert you're talking about, the one to 10%, which to me always says like, oh, you guys don't have any idea what you're talking about. When they talk about the number, they're like, 
they're just, we're at the cutting edge. We're at a new day because all the paradigms of soil science that they were relying upon were destroyed by DNA testing. I do DNA testing. There's a reason why I do DNA testing. And the new day that we live in has created a completely new dynamic picture that has uh, opened new doors. And that's why you're seeing people like me and others like William Padilla Brown, Mandy Quark, even you know, Alan Rockefeller um, make such headway so fast. And you can join us. It's, I mean, that's the thing. This, this field is wide open and there's so much work to be done. Here's a compost mite, microarthropods. Do you guys see how much bigger this thing is? So if this eats a microscopic worm, it is by accident, not on purpose. So, so yes. And, 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 and also please note that if you're like, how did you get this picture? Uh, it's in a well slide. Okay, it's not a regular crush it slide. Ooh, not, you, can't, you can't do that with a compost mite, like an Akari or something like that. Um, so keep that in mind. There are invertebrates with leg joints, the shredders, um, the herbivores, predators, fungal feeders. Uh, remember fungi gloms on, its, on itself and makes a mycelial mat and then they can feed on that because it's actually large and visible. We all can see the fungi that we can pick up with our hands. We look at it, it's actually comprised of microscopic threads that we looked at earlier. Um, and it helps build microaggregates with its fecal pellets and build soil pores and structure and tunnels with its behaviors. Earthworms, very similar. Um, they're, they're, they tend to make things more bacterial dominant and slightly alkaline. But that is really dependent upon the foods. Primarily people are giving kitchen scraps to their, their, their worms. If you did it with intention to give them fungal foods and, um, and, and I would say minerals as well, you could make things very different. I mean, I know that from experience and also because, um, there's the Johnson Sioux composting with the earthworms and you'll, you'll just see a wide variety of things, but even then people are finishing with earthworms and having pH eight. So, so you can change things. You can make it more fungal with worms, with the food, but if you're finishing with worms and you aren't treating it with fungal foods, know that it can absolutely turn alkaline, even though you're letting it sit. Okay. And, and they're, they're, they're the ones that are turning the soil over passively all the time. Uh, they can turn supposedly uh, over the top six inches, 15 centimeters of soil in the 10, 20 years. Obviously, that depends on your soil type, the amount of worms, all that. Um, we have to remember that when we, when we hear those kinds of um, uh, uh, statements, right? Um, that it can be greater than that these averages that we develop, they're averages. So all the, the things that people talk about, the goals, the, the, the benefits, the, the results, 
even even the anecdotal results because of what i've learned none of them are actually what's possible even the outliers right now aren't even mapping out what's possible so we have so much more to explore so much more that's possible and i know it because consistently every time i you know i'm i'm doing my work and i share what i'm doing people are like how is that real and i'm like oh let me show you the 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 video or the pictures and the test results and and it blows their mind and they're like i've been working on this for 30 years how did i not think to even pull that out and try that i i feel incredibly blessed i'm incredibly grateful to share this information with you i want to save you time want to save you effort i want to save you years of of pain um and uh and wasted um time because that's what pain is wasted time micro macro arthropods these are the things that everyone's familiar with these can be good these can be bad these are chitin based organisms remember that chitin based organisms okay they can be good they can be bad you're being attacked by a chitin based organism there's going to be some actions you're going to take we're going to talk about them in a minute here these are shredders herbivores predators fungal feeders these can be our pests as well um, and then there's other worms. So you got like pot worms and look at the size difference again. Okay. These are massive, much bigger, much fatter. Uh, and uh, they are, they are totally different morphologically than the, the nematodes. Small mammals and birds, they're part of this too. They're bringing seeds, spores, microbes, nutrients, and insects from other ecosystems and areas. Think about that. Every time a bird lands, it's dropping manure. The bird, you know, birds in North America, they're going to South America half the time. You got some local birds, no doubt. But most of the birds are going to Canada, down to South America, and they're stopping by on the way. And so they're redistributing the nutrients that are, that are concentrated nutrients, right? They're foraging, they're feeding they're going as they go, and then they're concentrating it down and releasing it. It's amazing. And then soil disturbance, shredding, they're looking for things, promoting all levels of the soil food web. They're tunneling. So the key takeaways here, couldn't fit it as three. Sorry. Uh, the soil food web provides the ideal nutrition and protection for plants. The ideal. And I have a very expansive view of the soil nutrition cycles or the soil food web or whatever you want to call it. It includes everything we just talked about, not just the original, you know, conception of soil food web case and cookies and everything. Love that as starting point. It, it started my heart on this journey so many years ago, trusting the plants, learning from the plants. Now I've grown and be able to see past that simple way of seeing it and embrace what plants are really doing and learning from plants at a new level. Microbes have the greatest effect on pH and EH and nutrient solubility in the rhizosphere, but it is specific microbes. It's not willy-nilly. It's not fungal to bacterial ratios. I have enough fungi, I have enough bacteria, no. Who? Mycorrhizae have prefer preferential bacterial partner. Did you get that? I hope that you got that. There's, there, there's these teams, these all-star teams that we can form 
that are actually the next generation of biofertilizers and stimulants that you're going to see on shelves everywhere. I'm not, I'm an educator. I'm not making products, but a lot of my friends are. But I'm testing all the products and I don't want a conflict of interest. I just want to create something that gives people the greatest lens that is the most clarity and the most power to make the world a better place, starting from the ground up where they're standing. The soil food web is key to the soil health structure and fertility. So at the top, we talked about the plants, right? Of this list. At the bottom, it's about the soil. It's the linchpin in both systems and connects them. And there's secession and connections and it's amazing. What are some of these products? Soluble nutrients and minerals, we cover that. Amino acids. Remember, it goes nitrogen, amino acids, peptides, maybe you're doing biohacking with peptides, and then it goes protein. So they're doing the work for the plant. They're saving the plant and giving the plant energy, in, in fact. Humic compounds, storing of energy, in other words, habitat, structure, intermediate chelators. They're going to be able to release things that you can't get otherwise from the soil profile that didn't show up in the test. You're doing the test. The university sent you back the test results and what do you got there? Oh, it says I don't have that. But you add these microbes, you test your plan. Wow, we're actually great with the numbers. But the soil test didn't show it at all. The microbes unleashed it and it wasn't soluble before, but it was during and after. Cydrophores, iron, Cyrophores' ability to, to release iron, to transport iron, the, and, and, and often the ability to steal iron from your neighbor. This is a secret power. It's an energetic power that most people and most uh, growers and people who work with soil don't quite yet understand. It's very important to understand. Too much to get into today, but I'm just going to throw that out there. Just remember that. Plant growth hormones, auxins. Now, th this is some of the depth that we would go into if we were in a classroom together, okay? We're going to go a little bit deeper here. This triggers root initiation, so you get more roots. This is what makes actual root mass. So, um, Bacillus subtilis, this is why you would have it. At the right moment, when you're planting, right? And then, and then maybe after you cycle that, then you do the mycorrhizal or the other way around. It depends on how the, the soils are. It depends on a bunch of different things. You could even do this through a foliar spray on the leaves, having the mycorrhizal inoculation on the roots left alone. And so it goes into the leaves and triggers the same exact reaction. 
Cytokinins, they trigger cell division. So more flower buds, earlier fruit, bushier plants. Um, that's Panabacillus polymixa. You've probably seen that in mixes, in biofertilizer mixes of yours. It also partners with something we mentioned earlier. Hmm. Da -da -da -ding. Digestive enzymes. How important do you think these are? Digestive enzymes. These are the things that break down things. When we are composting, we're breaking down things. When we're nutrients are being released, we're breaking down things. Bacteria and fungi externally digest. So it's a big bath and they're like swimming through the bath, absorbing. The roots participate in that. The bacteria that's free living participate in that. This is part of the reason why calcium uptake is by, uh, goes up by a thousand times. And bacillus species of all types produce it. So this is why your lab, your rice wash water is so important. Came back, it came back up it again, right? This is the kind of rigor we would go through in a classroom together. I just wanted you guys to see this. Chitinase, chitosinase. So this breaks down chitin. Remember those insects that could be your pests? You could spot treat plants at a specific time, a specific time of day, save a crop, save an indoor grow with chitinase-rich compost. Okay. It's an effective and natural fungicide and insecticide. The soil food web produces this at a low rate unless you're triggering it to produce it at a high rate. So like bacillus, notice how they all produce it. And then pseudomonas, uh, oreganosa, and then actinobacteria, streptomyces. We're so down on actinobacteria. Streptomyces is literally most of it. All right. If you're going to see actinobacteria, a betting man is just going to say every time it's streptomyces. Why? Because you have over a 50% chance of being right two-thirds of the time. So, so it's really important to recognize that streptomyces, the actinobacteria, the one that's been painted as like the bad one, is very versatile. It's everywhere. It's an endophyte. It's producing chitin, uh, chitinase. Fungi produce endogenous chitinase and ex exogenously as well. So in other words, it can take itself apart, digest itself, re and regrow other parts in different areas, change direction. There's so much more. If you feel overwhelmed, that's probably because this is a lot of information and we haven't started from a framework position. I mean, I know we had like, it was profiles and we had the digestive paradigms, but that's not a full framework. Um, that's, that's not the full holistic context. Uh, we need to include things like the cycles. We need to include the pH and EH charts. So energetically, we have things mapped out. We need to think of things um, so that we have them such that we're fluent so that we can be hands-on. We can go micro to macro. We can improvise. And when we can do that, when we get to that point, we can we can see the pest and infection and virus and disease immunity that we're seeking. We can we can taste that high nutrient density 
and just marvel at our food. We can, we can watch as our plants grow faster and we get yields that we've never thought possible. And the smells and the tastes, oh, our friends, our family, they're gonna remember this day, this season, this food, this bite forever. And you're gonna save money, you're gonna save time, you're gonna save effort. It's gonna feel like there's a new momentum in your practice, in your business. And you're gonna see things that, you know, it's gonna translate into not just less work over time, but more time of you getting to do what you want in your life, which means more joy, more family time, more hobby time, more getting better at the things that you love. And then maybe, maybe you're going to do extra acres of farming. I don't know. But saving that time makes the work joyous. It makes it easier. You see that your efforts are going farther. There's something so important to that. So precious. Honor that. Give yourself that time. You want to learn more? Join us for the live Q&A here in a second. And join us this Saturday, 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific. Appreciate you all. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more, go to regenerativesoilscience.com. Regenerative soil is the breakthrough that farmers and gardeners all over the world are using to unlock the full potential of their plants and soils. Universities are doubling their yields. Farmers are increasing their water holding capacity by thousands of gallons of water per acre per year. Gardeners are seeing pest pressure disappear and evaporate. The most challenging aspects of growing food are being addressed by focusing on the linchpin to all life, the soil. If we can get our soil right, we can grow amazing food, raise amazing animals, and overcome all of these challenges. We skip the pests, the diseases, the viruses, and soil damage. We instead focus on making things better and better. So our food, yields, and nutrition continue to improve exponentially with every single season. Learn to understand soil from the micro to the macro, down to the individual microbes, ions, and enzymes, and how they directly relate to hands-on action and pragmatic strategies for our farms, fields, and gardens. We can grow food faster with higher yields and nutritional density, but it all comes down and comes back to your soil. Is it resilient? Is it regenerative? Join us and change the way you see the world, food, soils, and everything and how it relates. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And click that link. Join us this season. Don't miss out.